I am glad to be in God's house this morning. I don't know if, if y'all miss me the way I miss y'all. <laughs> I doubt it, but um, I do miss you guys. I miss seeing you, um, so I, I like to get to come together. And uh, for all of, I'm going to talk to the camera, all of you guys that are uh, not here who are watching us uh, online after the fact, uh, we just want you to know that you are, you are missed and you are no less a part of this family and we are praying for you and we can't wait to see you again because you are precious as well. I can't wait until we can come back and have church without all this anxiety and, and these limitations. <clears throat> but you know what? The, where the uh, early church, where the pressure was put on, that's where the things began to flourish. And so I just I look for great things from the body of Christ as this pressure can, continues. Uh, I just think people of faith will begin to flourish in that kind of thing. You know, we get, we get complacent when we get comfortable. We don't have to exercise faith. That's why God can't trust us so often with blessing because we get blessing and then we get complacent and we forget where the blessing came from. We forget that we had to rely on him in the first place. And so you see that all through the Old Testament with Israel and they would have a time of blessing then they'd fall away because they forget who God was and how, how he brought them out. And he kept saying to them, I am the God that brought you out. By the hand I brought you out of Egypt. A work of grace. He brought them out of Egypt before he gave them the law. It wasn't, I gave you the law and you complied and then I brought you out. This was a, a work of grace. He didn't deserve it. He just, he just saved them, just like, just like me and you, and they forget. And so oftentimes when we get comfortable, we get fat and we forget. And um, I just think when the pressure's on, I think we're going to see some great and mighty things from the body of Christ. And I, I hope, uh, that's, that's my prayer anyway. So, if you have your Bibles... John chapter 15 Amen. and 1 John chapter 3. So put your finger and turn to the back of the book. John chapter 15 and 1 John chapter 3. I want to piggyback off of something that I posted on my, my little Jesus Joy and Coffee posts um, that I did last week. Um, and uh, while you're turning, I'm gonna, going to pray. We were praying church. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I just, I ask you right now, Holy Spirit, to fall fresh on us, fall fresh on me, anoint me, Lord, to preach your word, to do it with integrity, and open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and amen. So John chapter 15, looking at verse... 12. Jesus is talking and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now if you'll flip toward the end of your Bible and look at the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 11. John is writing and he says, For this message, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not 
Love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So what does it mean to lay down your life for someone? Jesus makes a statement that laying down your life is the greatest love that we can show. And no, Whitney Houston got it wrong. It's not loving yourself. Laying down your life for someone else is the greatest love we can show. That's what Christ told us in the Gospel of John. And Jesus told us that. And then he went to the cross and he died for us in our place. John tells us, that we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. So Jesus said, this is the greatest love. And then John says, do that. Well, I, I got to be honest with you, church. That leaves me a little bit perplexed. A little concerned. I mean, how does that play out for you and me? What are we to take from Jesus' example on the cross... And how do we apply that to our own lives? What do you mean by lay down your own life, John? Well, there's an obvious meaning. Of course, laying down your own life means that you, you die for someone. You sacrifice. You give up all of your future days on this earth, in this life, for the benefit of someone else. That's what it means to, to lay down. Your, there's the obvious meaning. And we, we see that very clearly and very plainly demonstrated and played out on the cross as Jesus died so that we might be reconciled with God. He took all the punishment, all of the judgment for sin. He, he took all of that upon himself in our place. And he, he died a very physical death on our behalf. A death that we all deserved, but that we don't have to endure that punishment of death because Jesus took it upon himself. That's what he did lovingly on the cross. And I, I cannot overstate the importance of that. I cannot make too much of that. All the while, Jesus is loving us. He loved us so much that all the while they're cursing him, they're mocking him, they're spitting on him, they're humiliating him. And he's Jesus. He's the only innocent person on the planet ever. And he just took it. He just took it. Not only did he take it as they tortured him and, and humiliated him, not only did he, he take it, but he perfectly practiced what he preached. Amen. And he prayed for them. Do you remember? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Pray for those who spitefully use you. What a perfect example. So when Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that they lay down their lives for their friends, yeah, he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. And you will never see a greater display of a more perfect love in all of history than what Jesus showed us on the cross. You'll never see it. But what does that mean 
for me and you. Am, am I to be crucified? Am I to be murdered and mocked? Do I have to die like Jesus died in order to live and love like Jesus loved? And I think that's the question that John is answering in his letter here. And to answer that question, he takes us through three different phases, three different stages, if you will. He gives us a very clear distinction. He gives us a very clear demonstration. And he gives us a very clear direction. So let's start at the top. There's a clear distinction between love and hate that John gives us. Most people would say to that statement, well, duh. <laughs> There's a love and hate, they're opposites, right? Duh, I get it. But in a world where right is condemned as wrong, and wrong is praised as right, the distinction is not nearly so clear. And this is the upside-down state of things, and that, that's nothing new. That's how it's been since the fall of man in the garden. Right is wrong, wrong is right. What is hateful is love, and what is loving is hate. And there's this, this sliding scale that people have developed between the two extremes. So someone can be mostly loving and a little hateful, and they can be mostly hateful and a little loving. But John wants to clear up the ambiguity. He wants to remove the gray areas so there's no, there's no shades of gray, as it were. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me, boy, what a statement. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Amen. Man, that's, that's pretty cut and dried. Amen. There's, there's no real ambiguity there. You're either with Christ or you're against Him. You're either in Christ or you're His enemy. Amen. You can't be on the fence because on the fence is against. There's no halfway. Because love... And hate are exclusive of one another. One corrupts the other. You can't have both in the same jar. You can't get bitter water and sweet water from the same fountain. You can't get good fruit and bad fruit from the same tree. Amen. You cannot say that you have love when you hate your neighbor. Just like evil and righteousness are exclusive. Because evil hates righteousness. This is what it means to be evil. To be evil, to practice wickedness is to hate righteousness. That's what it means to be evil. Let me try to emphasize that by telling you that there will be, this may surprise you, there will be absolutely no one in hell who does not want to be there. Everyone in hell wants to be there. How can you say that? You know, when the scripture tells us and it describes the, the, you know, the reaction in hell as, as weeping and gnashing of teeth, we tend to take our minds and equate that with sorrow and disappointment and regret. But I ask you to consider the image of gnashing of teeth and tears. Those in hell, they're, they're not going to be stricken with any kind of sorrow. They won't be grieved by their sinfulness or even by their final judgment. No, there, there, there will be no softening of their hearts in hell. There will be no repentance in hell. Because if they were to repent, 
The Lord is faithful and He is merciful. And if they were to repent and turn from wickedness and say, I, He is better, He is righteous, I want that, God is merciful and He would hear them, but that isn't going to happen. There will be no repentance and no softening of hearts in hell. There won't be any of that. Instead, what happens is they will hate Him. They will rage against Him in their hatred. It will be solidified and given substance to it so that they blame Him for their condition. They blame Him for where they're at. They blame Him for their suffering. It won't be, I I put myself here. I did this to myself. You did this to me. And it will just further solidify their hatred, their rage against righteousness. The more intently their torment is, the more intently their hatred is. The worse it gets in hell, the worse it gets in their, their, their hate For the Lord, there will be no softening of hearts in hell. Everyone who is there wants to be there. They can't imagine being with that. He put me here. Do you know what I'm saying? They can't imagine it. Wrap your mind around that. Just look at the world around us. You know, we live in an outrage culture. People love to be offended. They love their pain. They love their outrage. They seek it. They feed off of it. 90% of our news media feeds off of outrage. It's an outrage culture. If you're not outraged, you don't have anything to say. We don't want to hear about it. And we're just looking for reasons to be outraged. You think hell is going to be any different? Think about living your life and just... I mean, when I think of torment, that's it. Just anger hate and so intense I've been mad before but I don't know if I've ever been that mad there's a clear distinction nobody is going to be in hell who doesn't want to be there and why is that because everyone in hell hates God and everything that he is There's no sliding scale Jesus gave an example of this when he spoke about the vine and the branches he said you're either connected to the vine or you're cut off there's no, there's no middle ground there. He said, you're either alive in Christ or you're dead in the world. There, again, there's no, middle, there's no half alive. There's no half dead. Amen. He said, you're, you're, you either produce much fruit or you produce no fruit. You, you, there's either an abundance of fruit that we see in your life or there's nothing. Nothing worth having. There, there's no middle ground here. He doesn't provide any room for ambiguity. So you either have love or you're filled with hate. And the thing is that those who are filled with hate, this is what's so sad and devastating about it. They don't even know it. They don't realize it. They think that they're doing the loving thing. And that's the upside down nature of the fallen world that we live in. I want to give you an example to try to drive this point home. Uh, Most of you are parents. I'm a parent. And and if you're not a parent, you know parents. Um, There are parents who give their children everything they ask for. They don't ever place limitations or restrictions on their their children. They they try to be their best friends with their kids. They never want to make them angry. They never want to see them have to face any kind of disappointment. And they think they're being loving. 
They think they are showering their children with so many good and positive things. What does the scripture say? The scripture tells us that a person who will not discipline his child hates his child. That's Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. See, we've softened that in the modern vernacular. And we say who spares the rod, he spoils the child. I don't know that you could even say that in most circles today. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says whoever spares the rod hates the child. That is a big distinction. And what does it say about the Lord? This is, we see this in the Lord, too, how God describes himself. The Lord, what does he do? He chastens those who he loves. If he hates you, leave you to your, what does he do? He turns them over to reprobate mind, leave them to their own devices. That's hatred. But chastening, disciplining, that's, that's love. You wouldn't know that to look at the world. Every one of you knows a parent like this. Right? Every one of you knows a parent like this. They're too common. Way too common. And you know their children. And you know how much of a holy terror those children can be. And you pray for them. You go to the Lord and you pray for them. God help us when that child grows up. They don't even know they're hating their children. They don't even know that their actions are hateful. And what's worse, just just to demonstrate the complete disconnect, when they see you disciplining your child lovingly disciplining and putting restrictions on your child, they look at you with disgust. How can you be so mean to your own child? Back in 1 John chapter 3, look at, look at verse 15. John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You hate your brother, you're a murderer. So look at this, look at this. By refusing to discipline your child, you hate your child. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. By refusing to discipline your child, you are no better than a murderer. You have hated your child to such a degree as to be considered a murderer. Now, I'm just using the parent, this, this misguided parent that we all know as an example. There are many, many other ways that the world hates without even knowing it. Take the the broad affirmation culture that we have today. It is not loving to affirm someone in their willful sin. In fact, that's the opposite of love. It is hate. How much, how deeply do you have to hate someone to watch them drive their car off a cliff and never say a word about it? That if you approach someone about their sin, you try to show them love and you try to show them a better way, what do you get most often? They hate you for it. Why? Because wickedness hates righteousness. Do you see the distinction that, that John is drawing here? Well, John does, and he tells us, look, you guys are children of God. You are followers of Jesus Christ. You've been ransomed, redeemed, renewed. You should love one another. And the contrast that he draws to loving one another is to be murderers like Cain. Boy, John, you're speaking in big platitudes there, aren't you? That's a pretty broad spectrum. No, it isn't. There's a clear distinction. Why was Cain a murderer? Because his deeds were wicked and Abel's were righteous. Wickedness hates righteousness. Look at verse 13. He says, so don't be surprised 
that the world hates you. He didn't say, don't be surprised if the world hates you. He didn't say, you might come up against some struggle and and you may face some hatred in the world. Don't be surprised by that. What he said was, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Words matter, church. This is the state. You are hated by the world for the righteousness that you have in Christ. Why? Because wickedness hates righteousness. That's what makes it wicked. John draws a very clear distinction here, but he doesn't stop there because, you know, rebuke without instruction just leads to to rebellion. So we've got to have some instruction here. So he goes from clear distinction, hate and love. They're opposite ends of the spectrum, and there really isn't a middle ground. There really isn't a middle ground. So we've got the clear distinction. Let me give you a demonstration now, John says, so that you can see the point I'm trying to make. I find it so compelling that John makes the case for the clear distinction between love and hate by pointing to murder. And what does murder do? It it takes life. So in 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 verse 16, he says, By this we know that that we have love, that he laid down his life for us. So he, he starts with Cain, who was a murderer, and then he lays that up against Jesus Christ on the cross in verse 16. Here we have a clear demonstration. Hate takes. That's the example of Cain. Love gives. That's the example that we see in Christ. Let me go back to the, the parent, that, that terrible parent that we know who doesn't discipline his child. You might say, how is that taking? He's giving his child everything he wants. If he's giving everything he wants to the child, then, then how is that taking from the child? Well, you have to ask why. You have to consider the motivation. Why does the child get whatever it wants? Why is the parent so reluctant to set boundaries? I'll tell you why. It's so that the parent doesn't have to do the very difficult but very necessary and loving task of actually parenting. It's a selfish desire to do everything the easy way that is fueling that type of of parenting. It's a selfish desire to avoid righteous conflict. Yes, there is a righteous conflict. It's a selfish desire to avoid righteous conflict, to stay quiet and not confront your brother about his willful sin. Lovingly. The selfish desire. And in this parent, when he's, he's exercising that selfish desire, he is taking, he is robbing the child of the precious and necessary nourishment of discipline that he needs just so that the parent can be comfortable. And that is hateful, even though the world doesn't see it that way. It's wicked and it's as destructive as murder. Now on the other side of that, to make his point... John appeals to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So in John 15, uh, Jesus told us that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends, right? And, And we know that Jesus did that when he willingly went to the cross and he died on the behalf of the world. But that wasn't the command. That was a demonstration. Jesus said, love your brothers as I have loved you. And then he gave this As the demonstration, he gave the example of great love. He died and demonstrated in dying the way that he commanded us to live, which is to love as he loved them. So at at, at this point in time, the disciples, they, they really didn't have a clue how deeply Jesus loved them. 
I mean, yeah, they, they, he had been their teacher. They saw him do miracles. They had seen him uh, provide time and time again. They saw him calm the storm. Peter walked on water. They, he fed the, the thousands. He was kind to them. He was patient with them. But all those things, just they just, they just didn't know. Jesus had to show them the depths of his love. So he pointed to his death as a demonstration of the love that he had loved them with in life. In John chapter 12, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he he prays to the Father. He says, my heart is troubled. My heart's troubled, Lord. And should I I ask you to let this hour pass from me? He said, but I, I came for this reason. Father, glorify thy name. I know what's coming, Father. I know it's going to hurt. And I know this is going to be difficult. But the whole reason I'm here, the whole reason that I came to this moment is to make them see you as amazing. Father, glorify your name. So everything Jesus did was to display the beauty and the wonder and the holiness and the all-sufficiency of God the Father. That's how He lived, putting God's glory on display. That's how He loved, by putting God's glory on display. So yes, when we see the phrase, lay down your life for your brother, we rightfully take our thoughts to death. But church, it wasn't a manner of dying that Jesus or John was trying to teach us. It was a manner of living. Just in case we tried to confuse the message, John gives us a very clear direction. He begins with a distinction. He gives us a display, a demonstration, and he gives us a direction. Hate takes, love gives. Hate is murderous, love is sacrificial. And now the direction, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus didn't say go and die. Jesus didn't say go and lay down your life. But John did. John said Jesus laid his life for us and we should do the same for our brothers. It's often helpful to go back and look at the the original languages. Um, And if you look at the original language, the Greek is used for lay down in both places, both in the Gospel of John where Jesus says that is the greatest love and here in the Epistle of John, 1 John, where we are told to do likewise. The the language means to surrender, to to give up the right to something. And I I am absolutely confident that that is what John is arguing, that it's not in how we die that makes the most impact. It is how that we live that makes the most impact. Now, now Jesus' death, don't get me wrong, Jesus' death was different. His death was effective, efficacious. It accomplished something on a cosmic and, and eternal, supernatural level. Ours does not. And that's not at all uncommon for God. God demonstrates his truth oftentimes by looking at an inverse correlation. What is true about God is not always true about us. Oftentimes it's, it's the inverse. For example, let me just give you this example. God is the only being in the universe for whom it is not prideful to glorify himself. 
God seeks his own glory. And if we believe what the scripture says about God, then that is the most loving thing that God can do for us is to make himself preeminent. But, but turn the table and let's say I try to glorify myself. Well, that's not good. That's pride. Amen. That's pride. And we're nothing to be glorified, only God. But on the contrary, if we glorify God and we cause others to see Him as wonderful and, and all-sufficient and desirable, that's the most loving thing that we can do for someone because we have pointed them to the source of absolute joy. Amen. To give us a clear direction in this, to help us apply what it means to lay down your life for your brothers, John tells us in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In life, church, you are either giving or you are taking. Remember, love gives, hate takes. Okay? Well, Pastor Jeff, I'm not trying to take from anybody. I'm just trying to hold on to what I've got. Well, guess what? You're taking. See, God has richly blessed us. We're the most wealthy nation in the world. The poorest among us have been richly blessed. He's richly blessed us so that we may be a blessing to others, so that we can put His glory on display and declare His goodness, the goodness of God, to others in our loving and generous works. If you have means and you withhold what your brother needs, then you are taking. You are operating in hatred and John says, how in the world can God's love abide in you? So John gives us a negative example in order to move us into living a positive, proactive truth. In verse 18, he said, little children, and here's the command, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. In other words, stop paying lip service to your faith. Live out your faith in your deeds and do it with integrity. You know, you, you can help someone, you can give them money, you can help them out and have a hateful heart about it. And even though you've done a good deed, you've not done it in truth. Let me bring this into the, the church here. You, you, can, you can pay and give your tithes to the Lord and you can do it with a bitter heart. And even though you've worked in obedience, you have not done it in truth. I read this message or this passage about laying down our lives and, and loving and hating and what Christ did for me and let us love in word and in deed. I mean, let us love in deed and in truth and not just with words. I read that and I, I think about all the people who every day they lay aside their lives. That's what it means to set aside. When you say lay down, it means to set aside. I'm, I'm relinquishing my claim on this thing that I want. I'm going to go without so that you can have for your benefit. They lay aside their comfort and their possessions and their rights. Oh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians and Paul has been talking about laying aside, putting down his rights. You know, we have freedom in Christ. 
Yes, you can eat that that bacon, but if me eating bacon causes you to stumble, I'm going to lay aside my right to eat bacon because I don't want you to stumble. That's, That's laying my life down for others. I think about my own, own mom and dad, and I, you know, I'll never know in this life the sacrifices that they've made for me and all the times they laid down their lives. They set aside what they wanted for my benefit. One day that'll be revealed in heaven, and I'll probably be overwhelmed by it, by how good God is to me, how good he was through them. And there are countless others who live this out every day, missionaries and martyrs, you know, humble men and women who have, have no real earthly treasure to speak of, but oh, the lives they've touched. Amen. Jesus died a sacrificial death to show us how to live a sacrificial life. And I, I get so angry when I think about the prosperity gospel heresy and the accumulation theology that is, that is preached so widely in churches across the world, it's not gospel at all. It's anti-gospel. Jesus said, love as I have loved you. And then he showed them how he had loved them by dying on the cross. To, this is the extent This is the measure, this is the nature and the truth of my love for you. I set aside everything for your benefit so that you may see and savor the glory of God. John says, love that way. Live that way. Pour yourself out like that for others every day. Let your light so shine so brightly before men that they see your good works and glorify God. Who do you know that's hurting? John said, if you have the, the, the goods of the world and your brother has need and you turn your heart against him, you close, you close your heart to him. This was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was what Jesus railed against the, the religious elites in Jerusalem about. Amen. They neglected the poor. They turned their hearts against those who had need and who were hurting. They just ignored them. It's like they didn't exist. Who do you know that's hurting? Who do you know that has a real need? Now think about it. Are there people in our lives that we're just ignoring? People that God has placed in our lives and we're just ignoring their pain? We're ignoring their need? God has called us to live, man, this this Christian life is not nominal. It is radical. It is so different than what the world would have you think is good. Love gives even when it hurts, and that is disruptive. That will change lives. And I think think next week I'm I'm finally going to jump off of the deep end. I'm going to... I'm going to get into your pocketbooks. Listen, there, there is no clearer mirror into the state of your soul than how you spend your money. Amen. Now, I don't plan to make a ton of friends next week. Um, but I do plan on giving you the word of God. And that is the most loving thing that I can do. Um, so come with your hip waders on. 
or your steel-toed boots. That's probably better. I don't want to. That's probably a better analogy. With your steel-toed boots on, um, I had to eat it first. Um, can we get the the music team to come on up? We're gonna let's all sing a song together. Kind of let the word just uh, settle in our hearts, and then we'll we'll dismiss after that.